What a wonderful crowd. You all are terrific. You're really marvelous. I want to thank you. They're having, what, back up the pastor? Uh, get behind the preacher. Uh, well, this, this is a mutual communication of the gospel in song and in sermon. And it's just wonderful that, that music, like we just heard this morning and sung this morning, and the chorale is shared with us this morning, have traditionally gone hand in hand with the church in times of revival, reaching out, making a difference in the world. They are inseparable. And uh, God bless you all. Thank you for, for being here, for doing what you do. Beautiful. Those uh, first century disciples were having a problem with their version of the Y2K problem. They had, try to put yourself in their position. They would left their vocations, their work. They left their fishing boats. They left their, their civil service jobs. Matthew's a tax collector. And they left everything and they followed Jesus. And there were times when they were so elated, they just didn't know what to do. And other times they were so discouraged, they couldn't figure it all out. Uh, they, they wondered why he didn't do some of the things they thought he ought to do and why he did some things they thought he ought not to do. Uh, one thing was true of those disciples. There were times when they were frightened and distressed and discouraged, times when they were elated and surprised. But I guarantee you there was one thing that never, never, never happened to them. They were never for one split second ever bored. They were not bored. They were walking out there on the cutting edge of a transformation of the world and didn't really know it. And here Jesus had been with them and they'd seen him arrested and then crucified and their hearts crashed to the earth and then he was raised from the dead and then they saw him and they thought oh he's going to establish the kingdom of God we're going to have the millennium on earth everything is going to be sweetness and light and then he says I'm leaving you and they're distressed and they say wait a minute wait a minute he was eating with them he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my father promise, which you have heard me speak about. I want you to go back to Jerusalem and, and wait there. Listen, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now that phrase just scares the daylights out of some people. To be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's not anything weird. That's just something wonderful. That's just God pouring his love all over you. Pouring his grace all over you. Filling your heart with his spirit. And what are the characteristics of his spirit? Paul tells us, fifth chapter of Galatians. The first one is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and humility and self-control. Now, let me digress here for just a moment. There's a difference between the gifts of the spirit and the fruit of the spirit. Some people don't know that distinction. The, the gifts of the Spirit, you read about in the Scripture, the gifts of the Spirit, and he gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. That's in the book of Ephesians. Paul gave certain people, called certain people, to equip all of the people for their service, for their ministry. Do you know who the ministers are in this church? You are. We are ministers to ministers. Every one of you have a ministry. Every one of you has a calling. God wants to use each and every one of you in your, in your vocation, in your home, in your work, at the base, at school. And what, what our calling is, is to equip, to encourage. We're like player coaches. Uh, we don't play the whole game. We try to coach and encourage, but we're also in the game. So here, what 
what, what's happening here to these disciples is the Lord is saying to them, look, it's just not something I'm going to do. It's something now that I am passing on to you and you're going to do it. And you're going to wait and I'm going to fill you with my spirit. I'm going to give you certain gifts, but the gifts, the gifts can be, can be counterfeited. The gifts can be counterfeited. The fruit of the spirit cannot be counterfeited. The gifts can be counterfeited. But the fruit of the spirit just shows through people. It's love and joy and peace. And to be filled with the Spirit just means to be filled with love and to be filled with joy and to be filled with peace. And long-suffering and patience and gentleness and goodness, humility, which means down-to-earthness and self-control. So now I want you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be filled with the Spirit of joy and love and peace. Baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you going to leave us at this time? I mean, come on. Are you, going, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Aren't you going to set up a kingdom here? And he said to them, it's not for you to know. We read this a moment ago. The times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. Here. You want some comfort for your everyday living? Comfort is going to come when you accept my challenge to make a difference in the world. Comfort is not going to come... Just by sitting in a rocking chair covered with an electric blanket humming nearer my God to thee. <laughs> Comfort is going to come when we put on our shoes and move out in the streets to make a difference in the world for Jesus Christ. Comfort comes with challenge. God did not call us to sit down. God called us to follow me, he said. Follow me. Follow me. Come. Take up your own cross and follow me. Not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power. What does that mean? That word really means strength. It means inner strength. It means ability. It means to be equipped internally with a spiritual energy that you have never possessed before. With the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses. A witness. You don't have to know a thing in the world about the law to be a witness in court. In fact, they hope you don't know anything about the law. You're not in there to plead the case. You're in there just to be a witness. You may know a good bit about the law. You may get up every day and read Blackstone's commentary on the English law, but that doesn't make you a good witness. What makes you a good witness? Just tell what you know, tell what you saw, tell what you heard. That's what a witness is. You don't have to try to prove anything. Just tell your story. Some people are afraid to to tell this story. People want to know your story. There's nothing in the world people like more than human interest stories, biographies. I just finished reading uh, Tom Brokaw's book, The Greatest Generation. I wish everybody in America would read that book. I think it ought to be required reading in every American history class in high school. It's one of the most inspirational things. Ordinary, everyday people like you and I responding to a challenge to make, a, to make the world a safe place in which to live and to save it from the despotism of Hitler and Mussolini and all of that was going on in those days. Read that book. It's about people. What's a witness? It's somebody that just tells what they know, shares their story. And every one of us in this room has a story of what God has done and is doing in our lives. That's what a witness is. It doesn't call all of us to be preachers or musicians or missionaries. But to be a witness, 
tell what you know. Be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, in other words, start where you are. I can promise you that an airplane trip or ticket or getting on a boat doesn't make a missionary. It begins right at home. If our Christianity doesn't begin at our breakfast table, it's not real. Our first place of mission is where we live. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And lo, I'll be with you always, even unto the end of the world. You know, I think that that word of Jesus is not primarily, not primarily a commission to go into all of the world extensively. I believe it is equally a commission of the Lord to go into all of the world intensively. Not just go into all of the world geographically, but to go in the world we are already in socially, economically, politically, morally in our society. We're to be the salt of the earth. We're to be the light of the world, not just the light of the prayer meeting in the church, but the light of the world. We're to be in the world as God's salt, as God's light, as God's witnesses. He has commissioned us to go into all the world, into the world where you do business, where you get your car fixed, where you eat. Go into all of the world we're already in. Certainly we want to go into all of the world extensively. That's why we take up offerings like we're doing now, emphasizing home mission or state mission offerings, trying to reach San Antonio and Texas. There are some people who are called to go to the Rio Grande Valley full time to work there and minister there. There are others that are called to go different places. But all of us are called to go into our world, the world we live in every day. And you know what? If every one of us would permeate our world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, you put your world with yours and with yours and with yours and with mine. None of our worlds are identical. They all intersect. They're intersecting here this morning. But if every one of us was to go into all of our world intensively and make a difference there for Christ, then suddenly things would be made different all over the world. It would reach out extensively then if every one of us went intensively into the world we're in and witnessed to that world. So he's promising them comfort through challenge. Listen to what he says, Jesus says in the 16th chapter of the gospel of John, beginning with the fifth verse. He's talking here about the work of the Holy Spirit. Now I'm going to him who sent me, yet none of you even asked to me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you're filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor, the comforter, the paraclete, the parakaleo, two Greek words, parakaleo. You can, you can figure that one out. Parakaleo, para, walking alongside, kaleo, to call, paraclete. He's called to walk alongside us, paraclete, comforter. He will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because men do not believe in me, about righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can see me no more and about judgment because the prince of the world now stands condemned. Comfort. He's promised to put his Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives and be with us always. 
I heard Malcolm Mugridge speak for the first time back in the 60s at the World. Billy Graham had invited us a number of people, uh, in fact, a few thousand from all over the world, to come to Lausanne, Switzerland for the first World Congress on, on world evangelization. And Malcolm Mugridge had become a Christian. Malcolm Mugridge, one of the most intellectual men in the world, died not a couple of three years ago. He, uh, he'd been a communist. He'd been uh, editor of uh, Punch magazine. He had uh, been a devotee of Nietzsche and uh, his philosophy. Uh, he had been a follower of Kazantzakis and uh, that concept of, of dominion and, comp- and, and control over other people. And then he met Christ and he became one of the most articulate Christians in our day. Has written some marvelous books that are great for people to give to others who are intellectuals but have questions about uh, their faith and about the legitimacy of the Christian gospel. Malcolm Mugridge said many marvelous things. I heard him a number of times after that and read so many things that he wrote. But listen to this quote. My Every happening, great and small, is a parable. Every happening, because God is with us, every happening, both great and small, is a parable whereby God speaks to us through everything, great or small, speaks to us. And he continues, and the art of life is to get the message. The art of life is to get the message. God comes in so many subtle and tender and quiet ways. As in the story of Elijah, he doesn't come so often in thunderclaps and windstorms and lightning and earthquakes. But more often than not, he comes in still small voices. You remember Jesus talking to Nicodemus, this very religious, respected citizen, member of the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, sitting on the side of the hill at night. And Jesus said, Nicodemus, the wind blows where it will. The wind, the pneuma, the ruah, the spirit, the wind blows where it will. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from, where it goes. So are the things of the spirit, Nicodemus. Nicodemus. You need to listen to the wind. Listen to the wind. Muggers is saying the same thing. Get the message. Listen to the wind. And then Nicodemus grew silent as there fell from the lips of Jesus those words that we read early in the service. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The wind blows. Listen for it. Every event, every significant moment, every event in your life, large or small, is a parable whereby God speaks to us. And the art of life is to get the message. God has a message for you today. And for me, may not be anything that I say, but his spirit will speak to you if we'll listen with Nicodemus to the wind. 
It's amazing. I'm sure that if we took time and all of us had the opportunity to stand up here and share how the Spirit of God at times has worked in our lives and strange and I hate to use the word mysterious because that sounds sort of uh, foreboding. And I don't mean it in that way at all. But God, God just comes in such subtle ways. Um, I think I've told you this story. Back in the 60s, I was preaching in a, a church citywide crusade in Natchez, Mississippi. I was preaching in the city auditorium there. And... Uh, I'd call Martha nearly every night when she was not along. I'd call Martha uh, late at night after we'd get in from the service. And I called her and I was staying in this hotel. And our team, Eddie Nicholson, was there leading the music. And I don't mean O.D. Hall may have been there playing the piano, organ. Uh, but I'd call Martha. And this is one of those, this wasn't a real fancy hotel by today's standards. It was okay by the standards of the 60s. It was fine, uh, real fine. But the walls, I mean, you could read the newspaper and the guy's arm in the next room. I mean, the walls were so thin, it was something else. You, and the rooms were pretty small. You had to go outside to change your mind. But uh, you, I called Martha, and I was sitting there at the desk facing this wall. And uh, Martha reminds me every now and then when we're in a restaurant or something, I'm saying something. She said, Buckner, your voice carries. Be quiet. Don't tell that joke or whatever it is, you know. No. I said, Martha, I'm just talking normally. She says, no. Anyway, I was talking and I was talking about like this, you know, on that phone and, and uh, not paying any attention to whether somebody was overhearing me or not. And the next morning, uh, about 6.30 or 7, I was up getting dressed and my phone rang. I thought it was Eddie Nicholson or somebody that was there with us on the team. And the man said, Dawn, the other end of the line said, uh, I feel kind of embarrassed to tell you this, but he said, I heard you, your end of the conversation with your wife last night because I'm in the next room to you. And I heard what you all were talking about and the love you shared with one another. And he said, I'd like to have breakfast with you this morning. I don't have that in my family and in my life. And it kind of ran chills up and down my back. Still does. What if we'd been talking about critical things about each other? What if we'd been arguing? What if we'd been saying some harsh things? Listen, more people overhear the gospel than hear the gospel. More people overhear it. Kind of flows out of our life unconsciously. Because if you let the Spirit of God into your life, love's going to flow out and joy is going to flow out and peace is going to flow out. God's comforting presence through His Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comforts us and the Holy Spirit convicts us. I read that to you. It convicts us. It's an interesting word that is that uh, is used there by our Lord. Uh, I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will prove the world wrong about sin. The King James translates that he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. That sounds uh, 
that sounds very judicial, very much like a penal system. And that's not, that's not what it is at all. You see, the primary sin, the primary sin that any person commits is to reject the love of God. That's the primary sin. That's what he says here. He will prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment about sin because men do not believe in me. The worst sin that we can commit, the worst sin anyone can commit is to not believe him. When he says, I love you and I forgive you and I have grace for you greater than all your sins. The unpardonable sin is rejecting the one person who pardons us of our sin. Adultery is not the unpardonable sin. Murder is not the unpardonable sin. As horrible as those are in our lives and in the lives of other people. But we're lost. We're lost because we do not accept the pardoner who says, I love you and I will take your sin. I will forgive your sin. I will give you my peace that passes all understanding. He convicts us. He makes us to see that the worst thing we can do is to not return his love. Unrequited love is the worst thing we can do to God or to anyone else to refuse their love, their proffered grace and mercy. He comforts, he convicts, and he converts. Nicodemus was told, you've got to be born of the Spirit, Nicodemus. You're a good man. You're a churchman, you're a community leader, but Nicodemus, you need to be born of the Spirit. David Duplessis was a leader in the Pentecostal movement in America, a very sane but very alive and warm-hearted leader in the uh, Pentecostal movement in America and, and in the world. He said, the problem with the church today is that they put the truth in deep freeze. They put the church in deep freeze. And he goes on to use the analogy of, if you have some folks come over to your house for dinner and you have some wonderful steaks, they're frozen in your freezer. When they walk in the front door, do you hand them a frozen steak? No, he said, when they come, what have you done before they come? What you've done is you've started a fire and over that fire, you've put those stakes and those stakes begin to defrost. Those stakes begin to thaw out and they begin to warm up and that fat begins to drop into the fire and you, the guests are coming to your house and before they even get to the front door, they pick up what? The aroma. And my, their salivary glands go into high gear because they can begin to smell that. And when you serve them something, you serve them, you serve them food that has been cooked and that is warm and that has an attractive aroma. Well, the same thing is true of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the fire underneath the truth of God. The Holy Spirit is the fire underneath the truth of God. Jesus said, they that worship me must worship me in spirit and in truth. 
The church has a great commitment to proclaiming the truth. And we're all concerned about that and we must all do that. But listen, this is an old saying. I don't know who it originated with. If you have only the word, if you have only the word, you dry up. If you have only the spirit, you blow up. If you have them both together, you grow up. You grow up in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus. The Bible says what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Well, God has put truth and spirit together. They are inseparable. They are Siamese. They are joined together. And so the truth must be proclaimed with the fire of God in it, the spirit of God in it. You don't give a hungry man a frozen piece of meat. It gets warmed up. It gets cooked and the aroma reaches out and appeals to his spiritual salivary glands and he wants to have the bread of life, the food of life, the manna of God. And on the other end of the theological spectrum, Henry Van Dusen, who was president of Union Theological Seminary in New York, certainly not a Pentecostal institution, wrote a book in which he said there's been we have, we have gotten the order of the Trinity. We've gotten it out of order. We talk about God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He wrote a book entitled Spirit, Son, and Father. Spirit, Son, and Father. Because it is the Holy Spirit that comes to us before we even know about God. Our spiritual forefathers back in the Middle Ages had a term called prevenient grace. In Latin, you'll recognize that as pre-life grace prevenient grace. The Holy Spirit comes to us before we're even conscious of God. The Holy Spirit comes to us before we've even thought about God. He's the one that comes to us in all of our ignorance and even depravity and begins to work in our hearts and begins to cook the fire of God within us and we begin to smell the aroma of grace. So here's Henry Van Dusen saying, emphasize the spirit, not to the exclusion of the father or the son, because Jesus said, listen to it. Jesus said, when he, the spirit has come, he will what? He will testify of me. Not me, Buckner, me, the, Jesus, Jesus saying it. When the spirit comes, he will testify of me. The Holy Spirit never draws attention to himself. He works in our lives through love and grace and joy and peace and forgiveness and all of those things. But all of the purpose is to draw people to attention to Jesus. When he has come, he will testify to me. He will point people to me. Ruth Seabury was a missionary to India. She was from New England originally. And she was visiting one day with a Hindu social worker. And the Hindu social worker said, do you Christians really know what you have? And she was a little perplexed by the question, like, what do you mean? She said, do you Christians really know what you have? He said, every religion has a God. Every religion has an altar. Every religion has worshipers. 
Every religion has a system of sacrifices. But only Christianity has a savior. And only Christianity has a congregation. That's a Hindu recognizing what a lot of us as Christians do not recognize. We have a savior and we have a family. We have a congregation, not an audience, a congregation, a community of people brought together by the savior. And I invite you to trust that savior this morning and become part of his family become part of his congregation, to become part of his community, to come be a part of his church. When I read the New Testament, everybody in the New Testament that became a Christian became a part of the church. There are no isolated Christians here. There are no do-it-yourself Christians here. Everybody in the New Testament, and that's our pattern, isn't it? Everyone in the New Testament that became a Christian became a part of the church. They put their life on the dotted line, say, I want to take my stand for God and with God's people. Christianity has a savior and Christianity has a church. Join them both. Do it this morning. Let's stand and sing.